Romans chapter 9, as we have been for a few weeks now in this passage, working our way slowly through the difficult questions related to God's election. And we have been trying to really comprehend and understand the full spectrum, if you will, of God's wisdom in the way He has planned out salvation. It made me think this week about the issue of color blindness, which affects about 8% of people or 8% of uh, men who are much more likely to have it than women. I think half of, uh, about a half of a percent of women are actually infected by this uh, disease, which has to do with little um, uh, cones and rods which are in our retina, which have pigment in them and are able at different wavelengths of light to process color and help us to make distinguishing uh, designations between those colors. And what happens with someone who is colorblind is because of some defect or something, they, are, um, uh, they have some de- uh, degenerative uh, nature in these cones, which can't process the light in the same way. Now, some of them can see light uh, normally uh, on a, maybe a man-made surface. Sometimes they see light better on a screen than they do on a piece of paper, sometimes on plastic rather than wood for whatever reason. But many of them have difficulty distinguishing between particularly, I think it's uh, red and green is the most common form of that. And because of that, things uh, have a tendency to not necessarily be grayed out, but just sort of be, uh, if you will, bland, uh, coming together. There's no cure for it, but as they say, there is an app for that. Uh, people are making apps now that help people determine colors of things if they have this uh, issue in their life. But maybe more helpful, scientists are working on lenses, which are helping or trying to help people uh, develop some filter in these wavelengths of light which allow them to distinguish between colors. Well, in Romans 9, I was thinking this week, that's what Paul's really doing for us. He's really trying to give us a lens through which we can see and appreciate God's plan through election. That there are multiple wavelengths in which he's working, bringing about his various purposes and really his ultimate purpose of his glory. And by distinguishing between the colors of his glory, we are no longer subject to just sort of looking at a grayed out image of an arbitrary God or an unfair system. But we can see, if you will, the full spectrum of his majesty by the contrast in all the various purposes and all the ways that he's dealing with his creation. Now, if you've been with us, you know that this doesn't come out of nowhere. Paul is actually descending into this discussion in the context of a bigger discussion in Romans 9, 10, and 11 about the hardness of Israel, the unbelief of Israel in his day. Because although there were all kinds of Old Testament promises about Israel coming to believe in God, there was a reality in Paul's day that many of them were not. That, that some people were actually suggesting that those promises had failed, that the word of God had failed. And, and Paul is explaining 
in this passage. It hasn't failed, but God has always and still does work out His plan of salvation in the election of some individuals and the rejection of others. That it's all really, at the end of the day, a matter of His will. Or as He says in verse 16, so it depends then not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And Paul's illustrating that with a number of different Old Testament stories, uh, whether it's Isaac versus Ishmael or Jacob versus Esau or Moses and Israel versus Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and in each case showing that God was choosing one and hating the other. He was choosing one and hardening the other. And of course, Paul understands that when you talk about these things, it raises serious questions in the minds of the readers. He knows that. He understands that these are difficult doctrines for many people. He understands that there are all kinds of questions that are raised in people's minds as to the justice or the fairness of this whole process. And so, he sort of steps aside from the bigger question of Israel's unbelief and he takes on some of the tougher questions as it relates to the doctrine of election. Questions that deal with, I said, as uh, deal with the fairness and the justice in all of this. Asking essentially if God's will is ultimately the determining factor in all of these things, how then can God really blame anyone for not believing? Paul framed part of the question here in verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? Is, is God unjust in election? And as we saw, he answers that question by going right at the heart of sort of the basic assumption behind it as it relates to the nature of God. He, he, he really drives right at this assumptions about God and about ourselves. If you remember, we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, that first response in verses 14 through 18, God's election must be understood in light of God's overall nature and the overall nature of man. It is, as Paul says, God's prerogative to have mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy It is his prerogative to harden whoever he wants to harden. God's not obligated to us. He's not obligated to any force outside of himself. He freely chooses because he freely chooses. Or as Paul says it, he quotes from Exodus, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion and I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. In other words, the reasons why he has mercy on some and not on others are found in the secret counsels of God. They're in His mind. And in that sense, we have no way of explaining or knowing. It's just simply His will, His prerogative. So God's nature, we might say, is that He's free. God is free to do whatever he wants. As the, as the Old Testament writer says, he sits in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And of course, man's nature is that he's rebellious. Man's nature, as we saw, is that he's hardened against God. He's born that way. Man isn't born a neutral slate 
who then sort of grows up in an environment and is because of his environment or something outside of himself predisposed one way or the other. He is born hardened against God. God is not responsible for corrupting man's heart. He's born with a corrupted heart, hardened against God, or as Paul says back in chapter 8, verse 6, he, he, in his mind, he's hostile towards God. That's the way he's born in this world. But then, as he talks to us about Pharaoh, that God does come into this situation when people are hardened against him, and he hardens their heart even more. He gives them over to their sins or to the corruption of their life or to the hardening of their heart. This is a sort of a judicial hardening that brings about even greater consequences in their rebellion and increasing judgment against them because they turn more and more away from Him. And that view of sovereignty that He lays out there is maybe as, as uh, impactful in what it says, or excuse me, I should say, it is Im- as impactful in what it doesn't say as what it says. Because nowhere through this process has Paul ever attempted to correct that understanding that any of this would be based on our will. Paul never comes in and tries to excuse God by saying, wait, you, just, you don't understand what I'm saying. See, this is really ultimately based on you and the decisions you make. He doesn't do that. He absolutely supports over and over and over again that salvation is completely of God. And having said all that, he anticipates then a second major objection, which he states in verse 19. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will. So Paul's answering this question by now explaining to us, secondly, not only is this all based on a proper understanding of God's nature and our nature, but in verses 19 through 23, Paul sort of turns the corner and begins to help us understand that God's election must be seen in the light of his overall purpose in redemption. His election has to be comprehended in light of his overall purpose of redemption. Listen to his words there in verse 19 or verse 20. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. Paul is, in some ways, continuing to reinforce in these verses what, we, what he's already told us about the nature of God and the nature of man before finally moving us to this ultimate understanding of how God's wrath and how God's mercy are working really in union for an overall purpose in redemption, which is God's glory. And none of this, none of this is shared from Paul 
with any sort of cold, calculating, and um, dis- detached sort of intellectualism. Paul doesn't say all these things, writing them with an absolute lack of compassion for the realities that he is describing. Remember, he started this entire chapter back in verse 1 saying, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. This is not a man who talked about things like the election of God and the sovereignty of God in some cold and calculated way. He didn't talk about God choosing some and reprobating others, loving some and hating others in some sort of self-congratulatory format. This is a man who was heartbroken as he thought about the lost. He had all kinds of anguish and grief, and yet... He did not allow those sentiments to upend his view of God. It's the unfortunate pattern in our own culture, in our own society, that that's the way that most people determine their theology. Theology, understanding of God in the modern context, is arrived at more often than not sentimentally rather than biblically. You ask people what they, what they think and they'll often respond, well, I feel, I just feel that God would do this or God wouldn't do this. I just feel like God is like this or not like this. And so this is the way that people arrive at the way that they think of God. This is the, this is the process behind their thoughts of God. Well, Paul felt all kinds of things. He felt grief. He felt anguish. He understood the the plight of the lost, but he didn't allow that to drive him then to some deficient view of God. Instead, what he did is he continually brought even all of those emotions and all those feelings back to the word and submitted himself to the clear teaching of God's word. And so he formulates for us an understanding of, of how all of these things are working together, not from his own feelings, not from his own opinions, not from his own thoughts, but from the Word of God. Quoting or alluding in this passage even to passages in Isaiah about the Lord's sovereignty, about his role as a potter over his clay. And for Paul, understanding these doctrines speaking about God's ultimate purposes in wrath and in hardening or even in mercy and salvation, wasn't just some sort of emotionless formulation, some sort of intellectual uh, exercise. And he's not saying any of this simply to upset you or to push you into resenting God. But he couldn't help to point out that in everything that God is doing, whether in salvation or in judgment, it's all ultimately executed for his own purposes in his own glory. So the question that he's really addressing is, why does God still blame us then? I mean, if he's ultimately driving this whole thing, if he's ultimately determining this thing, 
If this is all ultimately up to his will, why does he still find fault? Why does he still condemn? I mean, wouldn't it be better if he just saved everybody? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be better if he didn't even create those people that he knew he was not going to elect? Why did he, why did he even create them in the first place? Is that right? Is that fair of God to do those kinds of things? Well, Paul answers this by basically asking three questions of anyone who would ask such a question. He, he, he responds by asking you three questions in return. Three rhetorical questions whose answer is really supposed to be obvious, or I should say is obvious, and each one of them driving you back to the very core of your own identity, the fundamental difference between you and God. The first one there in verse 20 has to do with our fundamental difference in nature, our nature and God's nature. Paul simply asks, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? I mean, this is really not so much even an argument as much as it is a confrontation of your attitude. He is reminding us that God is God and we are not. And asking us, what kind of relationship do you think you have with God? I mean, do you see yourself on a peer relationship with Him? That you have the right over the maker of the universe to question Him? That you would somehow have some... A place where he would have to answer to you. You can complain, you can protest, you can criticize all you want, but really it's not going to change anything. All it's really going to do is validate that you are one of the ones in rebellion against him. It'll simply validate when God punishes you. And in the final accounting, God ultimately is the one who defines justice anyway. Justice is whatever God does. Or if you have your Bibles, look with me at, at a, a passage back in the book of Job. Job chapter 11. One of uh, several passages in Job that, that frame our minds in this direction. Job 11 and in verse 7, this is what... This is what uh, Zophar speaks, but it's consistent with this view of God. He says, Job 11 verse 7, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court... Who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a donkey, uh, when a donkey's colt is born a man. I guess that's sort of an old way of saying when pigs fly. What What is he saying to us? He's saying that God could step into the courtroom and imprison the judge and the jury and he would be right. That is to say, he is over the justice system. 
Why? Because as Zophar says there, he sees iniquity when you and I don't see it. He sees what's in the heart of man. He knows to the very depths of our being better than we know ourselves. He knows who we are. So when God punishes, it is right, it is just. When God condemns, there's reason for it. So by his very nature, by his ability to make judgments that are beyond our ability, by his knowledge that is beyond our knowledge, he sees things that we cannot see. In other words, if we begin to say that God's sovereignty in election runs counter to our sense of justice, it should be pretty clear who is in question when it comes to anyone's sense of justice there. Paul might ask, what makes you so sure your sense of justice is right? What makes you so sure that you have all the facts, all the data? Are you so omniscient that you could know everything? Who do you think you are? And who do you think God is when you question him? He's not like you. But that's what men and women do. Rather than facing and grappling with their own guilty position before God, what do they do? They begin to blame God. They begin to accuse God. They begin to diminish and try to hide their own guilt by trying to call into question some guilt on God's part. So Paul just confronts that attitude right out of the gate. But then he He moves from that to a second question that also deals with the fundamental difference between you and God. And this one has to do, we might say, with the difference in order. That is to say, he is the originator. He is the maker. And we are the ones who are made by him. You see that in the second half of verse 20 and in verse 21. What is, uh, what, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So Paul's now dealing with what ought to be obvious to every one of us, that we are not God's maker. We're not the ones who created Him, we are the ones who have been created by Him. A maker, a creator, not only then has the might, the power to make us, but He has the right to make us however He wants. And as much as the thing He creates didn't exist before, He doesn't enter into a dialogue with us before we're made, asking us what we think about the way we ought to be made. There is no uh, gathering of, uh, of our opinions or our preferences or any of that. That's a ridiculous idea. A maker, a creator, a, a, a potter doesn't do those kinds of things. And so it's the absolute right of the molder to mold or to make something whatever way he wants. And if he wants it to be for dishonorable use or for negative use, if he wants to fashion a lump of clay for a trash bin or another for a serving dish, doesn't he have the right to do that since he is the maker? 
Or would we say that the maker is only confined to make all containers and all pots for the same purpose? Who says he is? Who confines him that way? He can't be. And this is obvious. Or it ought to be obvious unless your mind is biased against God and rebellious. It is not appropriate for a piece of art to say to the artist, why did you paint me this way? Of course not. Now some might ask ourselves, well, why didn't he just make all the pots for wonderful use? Someone uh, might ask, why didn't he just make them all wonderful serving dishes? There are those who've addressed that issue and tried to answer it, saying, well, God did make mankind good. He says at the end of creation in Genesis 31, he looked over everything he'd made and said it was very good. But man fell into corruption. And so since the time of Adam's fall, all pots that God has made have been corrupted in one way or another. They're corrupted because of the consequence of Adam's fall into sin. And because of that, they all have been born under a curse, a curse of judgment. And so all pots that God makes, some would say, are originally made for good, but now every one of them are born corrupted for dishonorable use. No pot is really worthy of honorable use. All are trash pots, we might say. But God in His mercy chooses some of those trash pots to put on display His kindness and His mercy. And so they would say, well, so so what Paul's really talking about here is not really God as creator, but God as judge. He's really just using an image to talk about God and His determination of judgment. Well, I, I appreciate certainly the approach. I certainly understand how they get there in their minds, but I think Paul is dealing with a bigger question. A bigger question, not just of how pots are made, corrupt or incorrupt, but really he's trying to answer the question of why are they made? For what purpose? Why did God choose to create some pots, some people that he already knew would not respond to him? People he knew that he would not give grace to. That he would not give the ability to believe. And Paul's answer is simply that God has the right to create people for whatever purpose he wants. But as products of his creation, we have no place to question him in that. And even more profoundly, we must stop and consider that when God made us, He made even our minds, our reasoning process, our wisdom is made by Him. Sure, it might be corrupted because of the fall, but it is in itself even derivative from God. So much so that it would be absurd for us as the creation, to think that we could outstrip the wisdom of the Creator. 
That we, the lump of clay, would have a better idea of how to make pots than the potter himself. That we would know better how we should be fashioned one way or another. And so as products of his creation, we understand that we are wise and we are understanding only to the extent that we think God's thoughts after him. We're wise and we're understanding only to the extent that we allow our minds to be molded by him. And just highlights one of the chief points of this whole analogy. God, the creator, has the right to create things for whatever purpose he wants. We have all these philosophers, all these, uh, uh, you know, uh, leaders of our society. They're going around and uh, spouting off all of their theories of mankind, all aimed at trying to tell us how man is to live his life to achieve his ultimate goal, which is individual personal happiness. And yet they err at the very foundation, assuming that mankind's chief end is himself, when really mankind's chief end is his maker. His chief end is the glory of the one who made him. And this really takes us to the third question that Paul gives us. It deals with the fundamental difference between you and God and this time the difference is not between our nature not between our order but really our purpose in verse 22 what if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction or in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory so Paul's asking another question here To help us understand that God in his entire plan of redemption has an ultimate purpose that is best served by the equal display of both mercy and wrath. That God has a purpose that in his wisdom he knows is best served by this equal display of mercy and and of wrath. Some ways we could say that Paul's sort of reframing the question. He's already answered the question, why does God create someone that he knows will already be destroyed? That's because, of course, he has the right to do that. But now Paul is asking, if these creatures are prepared for destruction, why doesn't God do it right away? In other words, if... They're born into this world, corrupted and deserving of his wrath. Why doesn't God just wipe them out immediately? He states the assumption, God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, having that desire, having that aim, he says, God is patient with vessels of wrath, even though he desires to destroy them. God would have been justified to do it in a moment, but he doesn't do that. He endures, even though they're rebellious, even though he, he is uh, grieved, he is angry by their sin. In some ways, he facilitates 
the further uh, culpability of these who are rebellious. He facilitates the further rebellion. He facilitates the accumulation of wrath against themselves. As Paul says to the Thessalonians, these unbelievers are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. He allows them to increase their rebellion and therefore increase their judgment. In some cases, as we saw with Pharaoh, God even hardens their heart even more against him, generating more and more stubbornness, more and more rebellion, more and more dullness of hearing, and bringing about more harsh judgment than they would have had otherwise. God patiently endures all of this. He patiently puts up with all of this. And we can't fully understand it. I mean, you and I have a hard enough time being patient with someone pulling out of the parking lot too slow. I mean, we don't even like standing in the grocery line if someone's, you know, writing a check in front of us or something, right? God's enduring all of it. All of these people. I mean, we have one person that doesn't like us. We sometimes crumble in tears. God is enduring a hostile, disrespectful, rebellious entire creation. And why is it? Why is he putting up with these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? By the way, when he says vessels of wrath, he's not talking about what will eventually happen to them. He's describing that they are currently under God's wrath. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we all once were children of wrath just like the rest, indicating that, that we are guilty apart from Christ. We aren't awaiting God's wrath But wrath, as Jesus says in John chapter 3, is already, judgment is already upon us. Or as Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So these are vessels of wrath who are prepared for destruction. They They are objects of God's current wrath. And God could put on display this wrath and this power. His desire is to do that because he despises the rebellion. And he could easily put on display his power by immediately wiping out all of those who are rebellious against him. And yet, what does he do? He endures it. Why? Well, Paul says it there at the end in verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared for glory. And evidently what Paul is saying is that there, with more and more display of sin, with more and more wrath and judgment, this wrath and judgment becomes a sort of a backdrop, a contrast by which God's mercy is put on more glorious display. If God is the maker, if he's the potter, fashioning people as he wills, he is fashioning them and allowing them to go on in their rebellion and in some cases making them more rebellious by hardening their hearts because it serves to better highlight the glory of his mercy. It shines, if you will, the glory of his mercy does more brilliantly against the black backdrop of his wrath. Like the jeweler 
who when he wants to show off the full brilliance of the display of his diamonds and precious jewels, will set them out not on a piece of glass or a piece of white cloth. He'll set them out on a piece of black cloth because he understands that that contrast will bring out the brilliance like nothing else will. We always say of our kids, they, they, they don't fully appreciate perhaps the riches and privileges that they have because they haven't really gone without. Or, or when they go and they visit a place that's truly poor, we believe that it will help deepen uh, for them the appreciation of the blessings that they have. Because we understand this principle. We have a sense that if our kids don't gain an appreciation for their privileges, it might lead them to a lack of contentment or maybe a sense of entitlement or at least a lack of humble gratitude. And so we rejoice when they have to go and look on poverty and look on distress. For the purpose that it serves. Well, in the same way, God's ultimate goal is that His mercy would be fully appreciated. If you have such a desire for your children, is it not right for God to have the same for His own? That His mercy would be exalted in the highest sense, that the privileges of the elect would be would be fully appreciated so that people would fall in humble gratitude before God. So it's not surprising if he allows vessels of wrath to go on as they do, that he even hardens some of them as he does. He heightens the judgment. Certainly was true of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had, if Pharaoh had agreed to let God's people go at the first time when God relayed the commandment through Moses, then the story of the Exodus certainly wouldn't be so grand It wouldn't have been told so many times over again and again and again. The display of God's power and God's wrath would not have been so dramatic and the understanding then of God's rescue of Israel would not have been so rich. S. Lewis Johnson says this, he says, quote, the greatest good that people can have is the knowledge of God. And the revelation of God would be incomplete if we didn't know Him in His justice and in His mercy. But we can never know Him in these attributes if sin doesn't exist in the universe. And thus, God has evidently determined that sin should exist in His world in order that the angels and humans can know Him in His justice by His judgment of sin and that people alone should know Him in His mercy by virtue of the saving ministry of the Lamb of God, end quote. God knew this. This is His wisdom. And it's His purpose. So Paul shares all these things not to represent that he has some cold, unfeeling heart to the state of the lost. And not in some sort of self-righteous way where having been shown God's mercy, he just quietly... Uh, secludes himself now in some community that is unconcerned with calling them to repentance. Paul burdens, is burdened, I should say, in his heart for those who don't believe. And he doesn't let those burdens and those griefs detract from God's purposes in his glory. 
Paul understood, as we've said many times, the real amazing thing in God's election is not that he, not that he judges. That's not the real issue of unfairness. The real issue is that he saves it all. That any of us could ever find the mercy of God. And this is where Paul wants us to be. He wants us to be humbly bowing before God, exalting His mercy higher and higher and higher and higher. Not only so that we can worship God, but we can be conformed to that image. So that in the face of rebellion, in the face of hatred, in the face of sin, in the face of whatever it might be, that we clothe ourselves with the deepest sense of mercy as we worship God by imitation, just as we do by exaltation, by celebration, by singing. It's a message, honestly, that we can only scratch the surface of because we're finite. Our minds are limited. We can attempt to wrap them around the infinite mind of God, but we'll never be like Him. It is our place simply to put our hand over our mouth and understand that He is God and we are not. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we are grateful this morning for the word again and we pray knowing that there may very well be rebellious lost sinners here who have attempted to lift themselves up against the one who made them to question your judgment and your ways and yet Lord all around us is the evidences of our own corruption the conflict the sin, the shame, the deceit, all the things that give evidence to the truth of your law and your righteousness are before our eyes. And when called to account, none of us could ever claim to be in the right. Lord, we pray for those who are rebellious this morning. Would you have your mercy upon them? Would you show them your kindness? Would you, by your grace, declare them to be vessels fit not for destruction but for glory? Grant them humility, tenderness, brokenness, and submission to your word and to your glory and ultimately even for their good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.